As in Mark, the action gospel. So let's hear what the word has to speak to us today. Mark 2, 13 and 17 says, He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowds was coming to him. And he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Thank you, Stan. Many of you know this. Back when I was in sixth grade, many, many years ago, my family and I abruptly moved from Orange County to Los Angeles in the middle of the school year, no less. I went from having a lot of friends to having zero friends. And do you know what is the hardest time of the day for a new kid at school? It's lunchtime. Because during class, you are assigned your seat. But during lunch, you have to choose where to sit. And I remember the first few weeks eating in the quad by myself. And I would see the popular kids. They hung out in this one grassy area. And I remember I would look at them with envy, wishing so bad I could be one of them. Every year, all the pastors in our denomination and elders are invited to an important meeting called the General Assembly. And it's at the General Assembly where all the pastors and elders uh, discuss important church business matters. For me, however, General Assembly is more than just a time to do church business. It's also a time of friendship and fellowship. Because you see, my friends and I are ministering in all parts of the country. And so this meeting is that one time of the year where we can enjoy extended time together after business is closed. Last year, however, there was a bit of a wrinkle in my plans. I remember landing in St. Louis, arriving to my hotel and checking in. And I discovered that many of my friends rented an Airbnb without telling me. Up until that point, we all always got our own hotel rooms, and then we hung out in one central place. And so I remember processing this and sitting at the desk in the hotel room. And I was trying to understand what's going on here. And I rationalized the situation. Jeff, 
your friends are all five to ten years older than you. You were always the outlier, the, the young one of the bunch. Jeff, these guys have a history that go way further back than your history with them. They probably just wanted to spend some quality time together. And so I understood their decision. I could see why they made that decision. Jeff, you still have lots of other friends here you can hang out with. It's okay. But though I rationalized that decision in my mind, it still hurt. This wave of sadness fell over me. I wanted to cry. And I remember thinking to myself, oh my, I feel like I'm in junior high again. You see, this desire to belong, this desire to be included, I guess is a desire we never outgrow. And that's the topic of our passage today. When it comes to Jesus, our passage wants us to understand who is an insider and who is an outsider. When it comes to Jesus, what kind of people does he surround himself with and what kind of people does he leave out? Here in our passage, we see that Jesus was a celebrity back then. In the first two chapters of Mark, his fame spread all over that area. People flocked to see Jesus. People flocked to, to witness his miracles, to hear his preaching, to hear him teach. They wanted to know Jesus. But we know there's a big difference between being a fan and being a friend. Thousands of people in this world are fans of LeBron James. Few can say they are friends with LeBron James. Thousands, millions of people around the world are fans of BTS. Few can say they are personal friends with BTS. And so it's the same with Jesus. When you look at Jesus' life, you have three spheres of, of intimacy with him. On the outside, you have his fans. You have the crowds who come to witness his miracles. And then in the middle, you have his friends, followers of Jesus, people who believed his teaching, who believed he was the Messiah. And then on the inside, you have the 12, the 12 disciples, the exclusive 12 that get to be with Jesus wherever he goes. And so the question in everyone's mind is, who gets to be a friend? Who gets to be part of the 12? What kind of people does Jesus invite? You may have heard the, the quote, a man is judged by the company he keeps. And so to answer that question, as to who gets to be an insider of Jesus, we're going to walk through our passage, and you're going to see 
three distinct parts. Part one, we're going to focus on Jesus's actions. Part two, we're going to focus on the Pharisees' response. And then part three, we're going to look at Jesus's final answer. So let's start with part one, Jesus's actions. In verses 13 and 14, Jesus invites Levi to become part of the 12, that exclusive 12. Levi is also known as Matthew. Levi is his Hebrew name. Matthew was his Greek name. The same Matthew who wrote the gospel according to Matthew. And so here we have Matthew's origin story, where he came from. And to our shock and surprise, we see that before he became the famous gospel writer, before he became part of the 12 disciples, Matthew was a tax collector. He was stationed at a toll booth in Capernaum, most likely at a bridge, a canal, or beside a major state road where he would collect tolls and taxes from all the travelers who would walk by. Now today, being a tax collector may be like any other ordinary job. You can make an honest living as working for the IRS. Back then, however, tax collectors were one of the most despised professions in all the world. People hated tax collectors. Two reasons. One, tax collectors worked for the enemy. They were traitors. You see, the land of Israel, the land of Palestine, was under Roman occupation. But the Jews believed that Palestine belonged to them, and it continues to this day. They believed that God gave them this land as their inheritance, as their possession. And yet here are these Romans who conquer them, and to remind the Jews who was boss, they would uh, exact heavy taxes on them. For every pound of, of corn you grow, we want this many ounces. You have to give it to us. And so those who worked as a tax collector were those who worked for the enemy. And so they turned their back on their Jewish brothers and sisters. They turned their backs on God. The other reason why people hated tax collectors was because they were notorious for being dishonest. They would always overcharge, overtax. If Rome said, we want you to tax 10%, they would collect 15%. Because you see, back then, all Rome cared about was that they would receive their quota. As long as you raised up and gave them what they demanded, anything on top of that would line your own pockets. And so everyone knew that tax collectors were corrupt and collected more than they were supposed to. And so if you became a tax collector, you were excommunicated by the synagogue. In other words, you weren't welcome at the Jewish church. If you became a tax collector, you no longer could become a witness in court 
your character was shot, that guy is not credible anymore. If you became a tax collector, you were shunned by your community, even your family. Your parents would close their doors and say, you are no longer welcome here. And yet these tax collectors, they knew this was going to happen to them if they became one, and yet they still did. Why? Just because they wanted to be rich. And so tax collectors were known to be the, the, the spineless, cowardice, greedy, no morals, God-hating people. They were outcasts of society. Now do you see why Jesus' invitation is so shocking? He only has 12 invitations to give. 12 invitations to become a disciple. And of the hundreds of thousands of people he could have chosen, he uses one of his invitations on Levi, a tax collector. And what makes this invitation even more shocking is that Jesus seems to be proud of his decision. He doesn't invite Levi in the middle of night where no one can see. Hey, come over here. I don't want anyone to know that you're a tax collector, but I want you to be a disciple. No, the Bible tells us that he comes in the middle of the day while Levi is working, and while the crowds are surrounding Jesus, following and watching his every move, Jesus says, you over there, yes, the one in the toll booth, I want you to follow me. You can imagine the gasps going on. Really? What does Jesus have to do with Levi? But Jesus' actions don't end there. Not only is Jesus unashamed of inviting Levi, a tax collector, but in the next scene, we see Jesus surrounded by tax collectors and sinners. Apparently, Levi decides to invite his friends to a dinner party. He was so thrilled and happy that Jesus invited him. He decides to throw Jesus a, par a party, and he invites all of his friends. Of course, what kind of person would be friends with a tax collector? Tax collectors and corrupt sinners. Only the immoral only the rebel, only haters of God would become friends with tax collectors. And so here is Jesus having a meal and he's surrounded by outcasts, rejects, rebels, and criminals. It's one thing to associate with one sinner. It's quite another to be surrounded by sinners. Not only that, but he is reclining with them at dinner. He's sharing a meal. Today, when you share a meal with someone, it may not mean much. But back then, sharing meals meant intimacy, friendship, unity. If you wanted to take a relationship to the next level, 
you would ask them, do you want to come over for a meal? If you wanted to reconcile with someone who you were estranged from, let's say you got into a fight with a friend and you weren't talking to each other, the way you made up, the way you said, sorry, I forgive you, let's be friends again, was by having a meal with them. That's why, remember the prodigal son story? What happened after the prodigal son came home and went back to his father? The father threw him a big dinner party. It's the father's way of telling everyone, we're no longer angry at each other. We're friends. We're back together. That's why Jesus commands us to celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's God's way of telling the world, I am friends, reconciled with these people. And so when the crowds were witnessing Jesus eating with these sinners and tax collectors, they were like, what is going on? How can be Jesus be friends with these sinners? And this is not like a once-in-a-lifetime happening in Jesus' life. When you read the Gospels, he's always eating with sinners. He's always eating with outcasts and misfits and criminals. So much so that it becomes a part of his reputation. People begin to whisper and think, you know what, I think Jesus is a drunk himself. I think Jesus is a glutton. He loves to party. He's not a good guy. He's not the Messiah. It became part of his reputation. For these tax collectors and sinners, Jesus was unlike any religious leader they've ever seen and met. When they are with Jesus, they felt safe. Jesus was so approachable, so accessible. When they met Jesus, they, they could feel that Jesus looked beyond their occupation, beyond their sordid past and that Jesus was able to see them for who they are and welcome them to his table. So that's Jesus' actions. Let's move now to part two, the Pharisees' response. How do the Pharisees respond? They can't stand what they're seeing. They are angry. They are livid with Jesus. In verse 16, they say, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? I want you to know their question is not one of curiosity. These Pharisees didn't really want to understand Jesus better. Rather, this question was an accusation. It was condemnation. How could you eat with tax collectors and sinners? Kids, have your parents ever barged into your room and said, why aren't you sleeping yet? Right? You're supposed to be sleeping. And then you try to give an answer, but before you give an answer, they say, go to sleep right now. When they're saying, why aren't you sleeping yet? They're not really looking for an answer. They're saying, you should be sleeping right now. 
And that's what these Pharisees are doing. They're saying, why are you eating with these guys? You shouldn't be eating with them. Do you have any idea what kind of people they are? Why did the Pharisees think this way? It's because the Pharisees were trained to believe that the way you love God was by separating yourself from those who hate God. They believed that you became more lovable to God the more you separated yourself from people who are unholy and unrighteous. I think living in this pandemic can help us understand the mindset of the Pharisee. Today, if you discover that a classmate or a friend or coworker has COVID, you're going to step away, right? I remember having conversations with some of you. We're all talking together, and then someone says, oh yeah, I had COVID two weeks ago, and then all of a sudden I see everyone kind of stepping away. It's just a natural inclination. Why? We say to ourselves, you are unclean, I am clean. If I get near to you, I'm going to become unclean. And so that's how they have viewed religion. That's how they viewed their relationship with God. I am clean. Everyone else is unclean. I need to stay away from them or else I'm going to become unclean. And so when they see Jesus surrounded by sinners, they have in mind Jesus in the middle of the ICU of COVID patients without a mask, touching and eating and talking with everyone who has COVID. What are you doing? You're going to become unclean, Jesus. That's why they're horrified. Now, this leads us to part three, Jesus's final answer. Though Jesus didn't owe an explanation to the Pharisees, he gives one. He says in verse 17, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is one of my most favorite sayings of Jesus. If you want to know what Jesus is about, why he came, think of this verse. Here, Jesus reveals how he saw himself and how he saw sinners. First, he sees himself as a doctor, as a physician. And he sees sinners as those who are sick, as those who need healing. What the Pharisees want him to be is to be a doctor who avoids sick people. Now, what kind of doctor avoids sick people? Not a very good one. The Pharisees saw sinners that need to be shunned. Jesus, the doctor, sees sinners as those who need to be healed. The Pharisees saw sinners as those to be rejected. Jesus, the doctor, sees sinners as those need to be cured. The Pharisees acted like germaphobes. Get away from me, you germ. Jesus was a germophile. Come close to me, I'm here to help. 
not only do the Pharisees fail to understand Jesus, they also fail to understand themselves. The Pharisees thought they were clean and these tax collectors were unclean. What they didn't realize was that they were just as unclean as these tax collectors. They might look good on the outside, but inside their motives are all selfish and twisted. And so they thought that they had to step away from the unclean to remain pure. But Jesus knew, guys, all of you guys are unclean. What you need is to step towards me. I'm the only one who can make you pure. You see, what often keeps us from Jesus is not our unrighteous badness. But what keeps many people from Jesus is their self-righteous goodness. These Pharisees, the reason why they don't like Jesus is not because they thought they were too bad for Jesus. They thought they were too good for Jesus. And so it warns us of this self-righteous blindness that we can have of saying, I'm okay, I don't need God, I'm doing fine by myself. In an ironic twist, the Pharisees who always considered themselves to be on the inside with God turn out to be on the outside. The Pharisees who thought Jesus would be one of them, he's gonna hang out with us, this Messiah, realizes that Jesus is not one of them. Now, before I close, I want to spend some time on one final point. And that point is this. Men, women, children, Jesus loves sinners. Can you repeat that, everyone? Jesus loves sinners. I believe much of our struggles with God stem from not knowing what to do, but not fully understanding who God is. A lot of us here know, especially if you've grown up in the church, that Jesus loves sinners, but I think more of us here have a hard time believing that Jesus loves sinners. The reason why you and I struggle to love God, the reason why you and I struggle to live out our faith is not because we don't know what to do, but rather it's because we don't fully understand who God is. And to illustrate this point, you, all, you just need to look at the parable of uh, the, 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 the talents if you might remember in the parable of the talents, the master calls his servants and he hands out different number of talents to his servants and he tells them, I want you to use these talents for my glory. I want you to invest and steward it well. 
After a period of time passes by, he then uh, uh, collects his servants and he gives them a, he makes them give them a, a report. Tell me, what did you do with your talent? And for uh, different servants, they will bring back more than what they were invested in. They obeyed God. They were good stewards and the master would bless them. Well done, good and faithful servant. But for the last servant, he brings back the same number of talents that the master originally gave him. He did nothing. He didn't work for God. He was lazy. He just sat by on the wayside. And so the master makes him give an explanation. Why did you do nothing? This is that wicked servant's answer. Master, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent. He says, the reason why I didn't do anything is because I thought you were a hard man, an unreasonable man, a harsh man. That's why. In the same way, could it be that the reason why you and I struggle to obey God is because we too think God is a hard man, a harsh, strict, overbearing man? How many of us see God as someone who is constantly frustrated with us? How many of us see God as someone whose patience is running thin with us again? You're going to confess this same sin again? What's wrong with you? How many of us, when we picture God's face looking at us, the expression we see is one that is of a scowl, one of disappointment, perhaps one of grief. Come on, what's wrong with you? But when you read the Gospels, you see that this is not how God feels towards his children. This is why we need the Bible. We need the Bible because the Bible portrays to us a God that is nothing like you and me. You might be frustrated with yourself. You might be angry with yourself. You might be disappointed in us. But just because that's how you feel about yourself, don't project that onto God. Because when you read the Bible, it gives us a different picture of God. When you read the Gospels, the most dominant note we have of Jesus towards his people is compassion. He is someone who moves towards the least, the lost, and the last. When you read the Gospels, the most dominant picture we have is of Jesus, is, is of a man who doesn't put up with sinners, who doesn't tolerate sinners, but one who prioritizes sinners, Great sinners, sinners who've made horrible choices, sinners who've devastated their families, who've turned their backs on their country, family, and God. 
when you read the Gospels, you see that the very things that repel these sinners from other men are the very things that attract God to them. Jesus loves sinners. Don't think that you've exhausted God with your sins. Don't think you've outsinned his patience. If you think God is a harsh man, if you think God is ready to pounce on you, then of course you're not going to want to spend time with him. Who likes to spend time with someone who is angry with you? No one. Could that be the reason why we don't draw near to God? Could that be the reason why we try to cover our sins from God? And whenever you conceal something, it creates distance, doesn't it? Whenever you have a secret from someone, it creates distance. I shared this story before, this illustration, but it's worth sharing again. Imagine a doctor who has a cure to a debilitating disease. And this doctor discovers that there's this remote tribe in South America being ravaged by this disease. This disease starts with the skin and works its way inwards until it impacts your organs, which leads to death. And so this doctor seeing the pictures, the video, overwhelmed with compassion, says, I've got the cure, I need to go there. But the problem is this tribe is so remote that no plane or car can directly take them there. You have to travel by foot. It's a 50-mile hike up a steep, treacherous terrain filled with mosquitoes. And so the doctor makes his journey. And after many weeks of traveling on foot, he finally reaches that village. Now, what do you think he's going to feel when he sees his first patient, when he sees the disease, when he sees the the pain of that patient? Is the doctor going to get mad at the patient? I can't believe you're sick. Why couldn't you take care of yourself better? No. That doctor is going to feel joy. I'm so glad that you're here. I'm so glad I get to treat you. I've wanted to treat you and heal you for so long, and finally I've made it come here. He's not going to scold the person. He's not going to shame the person. He's going to love that person. In the same way, when we bring our sins to God, His impulse is compassion and joy. Yes, this is who I am. I am a savior 
My job is to save and forgive and redeem. Thank you for bringing your sins to me. That is the dominant note the gospels paint of our Lord. Men, women, kids, do you want to be healed by Jesus? Do you feel like in your heart there's something wrong with it? Like no matter how many times you say sorry or how hard you try, you still do the wrong thing and you're like frustrated? I have good news. Jesus wants to heal you. And Jesus is the only one who can cure you of your sin. Do any of you feel like you have no friends? You feel like you're always an outsider. You feel excluded at times. You feel like no one understands you. Well, I have good news for you. Jesus knows you and sees you. Jesus wants to be your friend. Come to him and he will heal you. He will befriend you. He will save you. If any of you want Jesus to save you and forgive you, talk to your parents. And if you're an adult, talk to me or one of the other elders here. We'd love to talk to you more about how to walk with Jesus. But the good news of the gospel is this. God moves towards those who we often see are outsiders and they become insiders. He moves towards those who feel like they are unworthy of God's love. And that very thing that we feel makes us unworthy is that which qualifies us for God's love. I'll end with this last quote from Dane Ortland from his book, Gentle and Lowly. That thing about you that makes you wince most only strengthens God's delight in embracing you at your point of deepest shame and regret. That's where Christ loves you the most. Let's pray together. Lord, help us to see you for who you really are. Not through our own lens that are often distorted, not a picture of our projected self, but help us to see you as you are clearly portrayed in the Bible. And we thank you, O oh Lord, that you are a God who is full of grace, full of forgiveness and love and mercy, and that you move towards sinners like us, that there is no sin that disqualifies us from you. And so may all of us in this room, all of us here, all of those listening in virtually, may we respond by turning to you while there's still time and find deep healing and redemption for our souls. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.